time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Freddie Wilkinson is a mountain guide, writer, author, and my former roommate. His book, One Mountain, Thousand Summits, covers the 2008 tragedy on K2 in which 11 climbers died. Today, Freddie returns to the runout to talk to us about the historic first winter ascent of K2 by 10 Nepali and Sherpa climbers. I haven't even uh, made it all the way to base camp with K2. As close as I've come to K2 is about eight miles away at Concordia. Um, I saw it for like five minutes out the window of a Pakistani army plane or army helicopter. Uh, but that that's it. What were you doing um, on a Pakistani army helicopter? That's a project that's forthcoming for National Geographic. And is a story about the Siachen Glacier conflict, which has been like a long-term, slow-burning, uh, journalistic uh, fascination of mine. And mm-hmm. inshallah, it'll be in print in the next month or two. So... Okay. Nice. Is Freddie our first returning guest? Uh, others. Has Emily? Emily's been on twice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, at least. You're definitely but, uh, in an elite crowd of returning yeah. guests, so. though. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'll, me and Emily, I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. And it's even more uh, impressive because they barely have internet where you live. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's like. Um, <laughs> So, of course, we're here to talk about the first winter ascent of K2, uh, which you wrote about for National Geographic, and you had a piece in the New York Times, um, and uh, you've interviewed uh, one of the, the, you know, the main proponents of these ascents, uh, Nimstai. Um, I'll let you tell us, refresh our memory. You'd like filled us in about who he is on a former podcast when he climbed all of the 8,000 meter peaks in six months. The latest video, I just I thought we could start with that where, you know, he he, he like posts it's like a GoPro video of him and his nine teammates kind of marching arm in arm to the summit of K2 triumphantly singing, singing songs of freedom. And uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts and take us into what the uh, what this ascent means and and um, yeah, what, what your thoughts are. I think it's it's rare how nice organic feel-good stories like this come about and i was kind of thinking about it and like we're awash in this bubbling cauldron of watered down social media feel-good lifestyle marketing bs and you know feel-good stories are at once all around us but Often you don't connect with them. It's trying too hard. It's selling to something. Uh, And it's for me as a climber, I'm more often impressed than I am made to feel good. I see impressive ascents every time I look at Facebook that are going down. But it's just, you know, I've been trying to think of some parallels here. And maybe you guys have some ideas like... The thing that jumped to mind was uh, Tommy and Kevin on the Don Wall. 
that was just something that you had to love. And it was a great story of, of hard work and redemption. And it broke through climbing media to this larger ecosystem. And I think what happened on K2 is kind of doing the same thing right now. It's been interesting. Yeah, I, I think the, 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 maybe the thread that you're teasing at right here is this, the, the underdog story. You know, like there's the underdog component of Kevin coming back on the Dawn Wall to, you know, finally do whatever pitch that was. And they, you know, they did it together. You know, it was kind of no one expected Kevin to be also to rise to Tommy's level, I think, on the Dawn Wall. And that played a big component into that feel good aspect of it. And with this ascent, it's, you know, these are the the proverbial underdogs of the mountaineering world, the, the guys who are kind of playing second fiddle to the you know, to the the European and American mountaineers who often take the all of the glory and fame for the ascents, but are supported by a, a team of unknown um, badasses from, you know, from the Sherpa community or the Nepali community. Yeah, it strikes me like the Don Wall was like a buddy flick and that, you know, <laughs> Tommy and Kevin had to stay together and Tommy's such a stand-up guy sitting there waiting and Kevin's got to dig deep to, you know, give it one more go. And you're right about, you know, uh, Sherpas and Nepalis and and local Himalayan climbers being the underdogs, of course, and, and we'll talk more about that. But also within the team, you had, uh, Nimsdai, who is a Nepali professional mountaineer. He's, uh, you know, s- still kind of just burst onto the scene a few years ago with his 8,000 meter peak record. And, you know, he showed up at K2 Base Camp with Red Bull backing him, wearing the Red Bull helmet. And uh, we all know once you're wearing the Red Bull helmet, that is, confers a bit of, you know, Western success. And, and, uh, on the other hand, uh, there was Mingma Ji and his team, uh, who are a small group of three guys from uh, the Rawaling Valley. And uh, these are ethnic Sherpas. And, um, you know, they raised less than $8,000 uh, in a GoFundMe campaign and just were able to, you know, be in scrappy, you know, uh, dirtbag climbers with big dreams. They made it to Pakistan and, um, and to have those two teams combine forces, um, speaks a lot. And I, you know, more often than not when it's a first ascent and there's multiple teams involved, there ends up being tension and rivalries. And yet, you know, these guys just, kind of did what they always do, which is show up and put the ropes up there. And they just teamed up and fixed line up the mountain. And, and when they had a window for a summit push, they all went up there together. So it is the case that they all summited the entire team? Yeah. I think we could do a little sidebar discussion on what was happening on K2 in winter uh, this year. Um, and 
uh, Seven Summit Treks, which is one of the biggest uh, trekking agencies in the Himalaya. It's owned by a, a crew of uh, Nepali brothers. Um, they organized basically the logistical um, uh, footprint to get a base camp set up at K2 this winter. And invited a lot of people to, you know, join in on that. And uh, so there was multiple Western climbers who sort of are fronting on social media like, oh, I'm about to leave on my expedition to K2 in winter. Actually, they had just bought a, uh, a ticket on the kind of this commercial expedition. Um, but then... Uh, also sharing the, the, the same base camp, um, but kind of climbing as independent teams. There was Nims and his crew, which was six guys total, and Mingma and his crew, which was three guys total. And then one-tenth Sherpa, uh, Sauna Sherpa, was actually a professional Sherpa in a guide role for Seven Summit Treks, also joined this team. As this news filtered out, it was sort of confusing as to how all those people ended up together and and on the summit. So, you know, we're talking about this feel-good story, but how aware do you think, you know, Nims Dai, who's who's definitely very savvy with media, how aware of the symbolism do you think these guys are in terms of like, again, you know, Nepalese climbers who've always been a little bit, not a little bit have mostly been sort of second fiddle to Western climbers, um, a nabbing this last, you know, the last of the last, although there'll be some other last great thing. I'm sure that'll come up next, but, um, one of the last great plums to pick there in, in the, in the Himalaya or in the Karakoram in this case, how aware of like what they're doing kind of that a little bit fronts against that stuff. Um, do you think Nims die is, or was, do you think he's aware of the symbolism beyond just the feel-good story? I think they're pretty self-aware. You know, Nims especially is, you know, now a a vested professional mountaineer by any standard and, you know, has hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram and all that. So knows he's speaking to a wide audience. And, you know, the other members of his team are, are active in talking about about their climbs and you know just like aspiring climbers in the west do so i think they you know they're being intentional here did that 10th sherpa who just kind of pieced out on his um guiding role and to just to join his bros and go climbing did he get in trouble with the with the seven summits outfitter (laughs) i haven't found out what really was going on there and i am curious to you know, ask more and, and try to catch up with Sana because there's different interpretations. Plausibly, he was just, you know, didn't want to be left out, you know, and felt the, the FOMA. <laughs> and possibly, possibly Seven Summit Treks wanted somebody with their flag on top. And it was most likely a combination of the two. One of the things you said, Freddie, the other day when we were talking about this was uh, your observation about the way the ro- the news rolled out, which uh, you can expand on. But the, your your observation I thought was really cool was that Nims Nims has this kind of reputation of being this showboaty, 
you know, social media savvy guy, self-promoter in a way. Um, but he was actually quite humble in his approach to rolling out this news. He let the news of the, the, the team of 10 reaching the summit come out. And then a few days later, he disclosed that he had actually done it without oxygen. Um, and, you know, you could easily see a world in which the, the stories had come out at the same time or been reversed and all the attention would have been on Dims and his his no, you know, no oxygen ascent of K2 and winter would be the, the headline. I don't know. Do you, do you feel like that was an intentional thing? Was Or, um, you know, what does that say about his personality that maybe we've gotten wrong? Yeah, I think I think it was definitely a, a premeditated strategy. And I think it was a classy way to do it. I think uh, hats off to him, A, for, you know, doing K2 oxygenless in winter. I haven't had a chance to take the deep dive on the records and the statistics, but I'm not sure what the next highest 8,000 meter peak to be climbed without oxygen in winter is. But certainly I don't think Everest has been climbed without oxygen in winter. And so, you know, that right there is a significant uh, thing. Yeah, I think I think you know these guys clearly they had a lot of tea in base camp waiting out the bad weather and you know uh all 10 of them kind of were able to kind of figure out what their plan was and Nims even in his Instagram referenced like according to the new mega plan or something and so you knew that they were they were really thinking and working on this so given just the history of the Sherpa community in Himalayan mountaineering, and, you know, it, it goes back to the roots of the sport and their story really, in a way, this K2 winter ascent sort of provides a really nice bookend on the hundred year history of uh, Sherpas and, and mountaineering. When, uh, when Nims did the, the record 8,000 meter run, there was, you know, there was definitely some criticism, um, in his methods in terms of just like what he, what he kind of modern sort of advances that he used, he zipped around on helicopters, that sort of thing. Um, what, what's been the kind of general mountaineering reaction this time around to this particular ascent? What have sort of the heavies had to say about this particular ascent? Well, I haven't really made an effort to take a, uh, you know, the, kind of a, a comprehensive temperature of all the heavies but you know i do know i think from the i mean you're older what about us <laughs> yeah yeah we're, we're the heavies we're on here <laughs> <laughs> this is your first start on the heavies tour <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> our opinion of high altitude mountaineering is is one of the more accurate and, and impressive ones i'm sure um, anyway go ahead sorry <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, like the older generation of uh, Himalayan pioneers, Chris Bonington, Reinhold Messner, um, have all you know congratulated the team and and you know tipped their proverbial caps. Um, and I, I think that's great. I, and I you know I think for the Western Alpine climbing community, they're you know climbing a. 
K2 and Winter is just, uh, you know, it's almost more like old school exploration or a different category of climbing or adventure than what we kind of do and, and talk about most of the time. So it's a little, you know, I don't think it's kind of relates uh, in a lot of people's mind, but I think everybody's impressed and psyched. What about the other teams on the mountain? I mean, there was uh, one death that I know of, Spanish mountaineer, I believe, um, Sergei Minhote, I believe is maybe how you pronounce his last name. Um, what what happened with, down with the, the other teams? Was anybody make a, a dash at it? Did people just bail once it got done? Um, do you know what's going on there? I don't have a up-to-the-moment update. There were definitely uh, still a, a good crowd in base camp hoping to get a crack at the summit. As of 48 hours ago, there was reports of a, of a weather window and some teams moving up the mountain. I have not seen anything. I'm just looking now, but I haven't seen anything to know if there's been any subsequent summits. Yeah, it's funny because like who wants to like spend the rest of their winter suffering at K2 base camp to be the 11th person to climb K2 in winter? Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> That's kind of what I was sort of curious about. If like, if like this is the end of, if this is the end of winter climbing on K2 for, for a long time, probably. <laughs> I, I would hope so. I mean, I think there's other ways to have fun in the Himalaya. <laughs> Freddie, what do you attribute to their success on this uh, summit? Because I, I sort of my like very Gumby-ish understanding of what it takes to climb K2 is that, you know, there's a lot of just luck involved with finding the weather window and getting the conditions right and being acclimated. And um, uh, of course, all of that is like compounded exponentially in the winter. Yeah, this was a question I asked Alan Arnett and... Um, does seem like they had, you know, a, a bit more good weather than typical. Um, they had, you know, we're getting regular weather windows uh, to, to fix lines during and, and then to launch uh, their summit bid. So I think there was a, a luck factor involved. Um, but moreover, I, I attribute it to, you know, the teamwork uh, that, that these guys had. And I think that's born of uh, their experience climbing, uh, doing the 8,000 meter peaks in record time with NIMS and just being a, a modern Sherpa guide. These guys are kind of used to, you know, getting a route set up on a mountain pretty darn quickly and efficiently uh, to, to open it up for their clients. And so, you know, they know how to do this and it's, it's logistics. It's like, you got to get 500 meters of static line up to camp three. Okay. That's like, you know, uh, five guys putting two ropes in their backpack each. And, and so, uh, but they have that mentality and that background. That's not an uh, experience that Colin Brady necessarily has. <laughs> uh, no, I don't, I don't think so. And of course the, the controversial uh, Mr. O'Brady is in base camp. Uh, I in his own winter ascent. So we'll see how that goes. It, it's uh, now that the ropes are fixed up the mountain, that's three quarters of the battle. And so it does open the mountain up to 
you know, recreational lever level, you know, folks who can just clip their Jumars onto a fixed line and, and suck wind. <laughs> it, speaking of wind, though, it does. It just feels like you know to what we were talking about before. Like the you know the air is out of the balloon. Like you know those guys just like put the hammer down and and said, yeah, this is done, you guys. Like I just I, I'm with you. Like it just feels really would be really hard to motivate um, up the mountain at this point. <laughs> yeah, that got done in that way, you know, and that everything about your ascent now is going to be second fiddle to again not just that they did it but the way they did it will just overshadow like you just said anybody just like banging up the lines and using oxygen and yeah i i think it's you know there's just nothing to be gained other than if you have just a a serious personal desire to be on top of k2 and winter which has proven to probably you know with all the sponsorships and stuff that go into this like that would uh, I think be a hard and unusual motivation for a lot of these folks. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it's just the, the circumstances are posing this delicious question. Okay, guys, was it about being first or are you just climbing for yourself? Let's find out. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's find out. <laughs> I think I know the answer, but um, but uh, yeah. Um, I have another qu- question too in terms of um, you know, the mixed team you. you talked about how uh on one end there's nimsdai who's the far and away the most decorated if you will in terms of sponsorship and things nepali climber out there by you know leaps and bounds and then on the other end you've got these guys scraping it together um do you think this will continue to broaden interests by sort of western sponsors um and moneyed sponsors to be talking to sherpa uh these guys maybe some of the other team members about uh, moving into that realm, um, and, and, and what might come with that? I think so. I hope so. And, you know, as a climbing writer, I'm trying to, uh, you know, celebrate these guys and get them as much press as possible. And, and hopefully they can find, find those sorts of, you know, acknowledgements and support and enjoy that kind of, uh, bet those benefits. Cause they, you know, these guys are all rad, rad climbers and, and really good people and, and great, uh, ambassadors uh for the sport what's interesting another point i was kind of thinking about chris uh is that separate to what was going on on k2 there's another all sherpa team trying a winter ascent of manasalu and one of them is my buddy uh tenji who was uh uli's uh uh you know mentee and uh, climbed Chalazzi with Uli Steck. And now he's like 26, 28. And he and a buddy are just trying to like tick off an 8,000 meter peak while they're not working. And winners, if you're a guide, you're kind of locked up doing spring and fall in the Himalayas. And so winter climbing is a natural fit for, for the locals. That's that's pretty awesome because like I remember when I was a guy just in Estes Park like you couldn't get you couldn't get guys to go climbing after work because they were like sick of it so it's pretty amazing that these guys would be like all right we just did these this humongous season and you know climbing and let on our free time let's go suffer in the wintertime on another mountain like um and then they'll just roll right back into the season so I think it just speaks to how this is just their home like this is where they live and and what they do as opposed to some, 
you know, sort of once in a lifetime challenge that they they present to themselves the way a, a Western climber might. Yeah, there's a real, um, you know, kind of collective spirit and momentum, I think, going on right now in the Sherpa climbing community. And it's been fermenting a long time. The Kumbu Climbing Center and all the work uh, Jenny and Conrad have done to promote climbing, not just as a job, but as a as a sport and a, and a passion. That's planted a lot of seeds. And, you know, these guys are, it's just like when, you know, there's suddenly a new flock of young guides in Estes Park or North Conway and they're they're going to the crag every night after work. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the old guys are like, eh, fuck it, I gotta yeah. go to bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's funny because we're talking about these guys all maybe like getting interest in sponsors and then I just like I just imagine like the way it works in the in the States where it's like all these guys like scrabbling for pieces of the pot the sponsorship pie you know like marching around the trade show hoping to get free shoes and stuff so hopefully yeah. those guys can rise above all that and, and keep keep the spirit alive that can be sucked out of something really quickly with capitalism yeah fair point i would i would <laughs> you know now that you mentioned that i would i would encourage them to just develop themselves as guides and build strong, yeah. solid trekking companies and, and, you know, businesses in the tourist uh, sector that can provide long-term rather than, you know, the next yeah, long-term being the important part of that. Yeah. That doesn't mean they can't be influencers though. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that just like to bring, uh, tie this up. Um, there's like this, tension between these two storylines that are kind of coming together in this interesting way, which is on the one hand, you know, this is such a great story because we're reminded of the context that these guys are climbing in, which is, you know, 70 plus year history of mountaineering being this kind of exploitative venture u utilizing, you know, local labor and not sharing in the the accolades and the, the subsequent wealth that's generated from these achievements. And yet, on the other hand, this is a story of, you know, a group of people who are just showing how much progress has been made, where there is a local climbing scene and there are local climbers who are doing things for themselves and not only doing things, but achieving like maybe the last, the so-called last great prize of mountaineering. And so, you know, it's, it's both this, retrospective look at like uh, a history that hasn't always been s something to be proud of. And as well as a story that shows just how much progress has and can be made. Hell yeah. It, um, you know, like I, I, I already mentioned, it's just a, it's a really nice sort of bookend. And of course the, the, you know, Sherpa climbing story will continue and Himalayan climbing will continue. But to see how far they've come is, uh, you know, it's hard not just to get a little tingle. And with this kind of progress comes, you know, there's was another recent tragedy in the Kumbu just last week. A young Sherpa guide climber, Urkin, was uh, killed in a climbing accident. And, you know, my heart goes out to everyone in his community. And so as I think everybody's relationship with climbing and, and guiding evolves over there, there's there's going to be those sorts of, of 
tragedies and and things that don't get as much uh, press, but but are worth thinking about. What do you think um, the future holds? I mean, considering this, if we like consider what this trajectory suggests, you know, imagine 70 years from now, like I could see a scenario where, you know, there are no Western guide companies to speak of because Everest is, is now the realm of Nepali owned Sherpa owned companies and outfits you know, not only are are they the best climbers in the world, they also have the best companies for guiding people who want to do these kinds of things. Uh, I think it's already almost in a lot of ways definitively shifted there in that even the, you know, sort of the A-list Everest guide companies, your IMGs and Climbing the Seven Summits, Garrett Madison, etc., those guys are all partnered with very uh, well-organized, well-run local uh, trekking companies that provide all their in-country logistics. And that's regulated by the government. You can't just show up in Nepal as a foreign guide and guide Everest. You're doing it through a local trekking agency. And those guys hold a lot of power and you know i don't know in terms of profit sharing how it works the business is pretty opaque but i suspect they're doing just as well as the you know western guides who work in the himalaya uh but you're right on a more of a a, a granule individual guide level you know, there are a group of Nepali uh, certified UIAGM guides now. And, you know, there is that professional guiding movement and people are getting better English skills and just savvier all around than, you know, perhaps their parents or grandparents uh, had the opportunity to be 20 or 30 years ago. And so I do see, I mean, it's already happening, but very quickly there will be Sherpa, Kevin Mahoney guides and Bayard Russell guides uh, all around the Himalaya who can take you to the top of Everest or take you up a grade five ice climb. Kelly Cordes is a climber, writer, and margarita specialist. He's the author of The Tower, a chronicle of climbing and controversy on Cerro Torre. Today, we discuss the recent passing of Cesare Maestre at a ripe old age of 91 years old. Maestre, the affectionately named Spider of the Dolomites, was a legend and climbing icon in his home of Italy, but his legacy is inextricably linked to the all but debunked claims of having climbed the first descent of Cerro Torre in 1959. Cesare Maestri, right? The the person, who he is, which kind of raises the question of, of like, who are we? Underneath it all, right? Who are we? And then you had Il Ragno della Dolomiti, the spider of the Dolomites. That was almost like his persona, right? But like there's these two different versions, but but they're inextricably intertwined. I mean, Il Ragno della Dolomiti, the spider of the Dolomites, the great climber, that didn't arise out of nowhere. You can't just take some random person who has nothing inside of them and give them the drive and the ability and the competencies. And some of the some of that drive, some of that determination, that defiance, that spirit, those led to some bad things too. 
and and also some wonderful things. You can't really parse all of these things out. You can't separate and isolate them. So the spider came from Chesri Maestri, whoever Chesri was. But the person that we all know in the climbing public, the spider of the Dolomites was this brash, defiant, incredibly driven person who, who was also, he had a lot of faults as well. And the people close to him talk about that. And they talk about how in private, as a human, he was actually oftentimes quite sensitive. His feelings were easily hurt. Um, he seemed kind of conflicted. He seemed very pained by the Saratore affair and the loss of Tony Egger. And yet, through a combination of whatever innate attributes he had, the amazing upbringing at that time and place you have to remember the time and place in which Maestri arose in, in the ashes of the great wars. And, you know, he was, you know, his, his mom died when he was, I think, seven. His dad ran a, a traveling circus and was condemned to death by the Nazis. They spent time running away. Uh, Maestri joined some of the partisan resistance effort. I mean, he was a rags to riches story. All that drive, all that determination also came back to cause him some problems, but it also brought him some greatness. And then in that time, in that era, in Italy, after the wars, I mean, so not, I didn't understand any of this when I started the book. And then I started to learn about Maestri when I was over in Italy, and especially even speaking with this older woman, a, a wonderful woman named Morella Tenderini. She's a historian. She's written seven or nine or probably more by now books. Um, she's a good friend of Maestri's. And she started talking to me that like the first night I was over there and, and we're sharing wine, you know, she's like in her seventies. And, and then her eyes start drifting off to this different place, a place that I, I can't possibly understand, but I saw it through her eyes. And she starts talking about when she's living with her soon to be husband in this bombed out building and when the Allies came through the street and, and, and they all came out of these bombed out buildings, started singing and dancing in the streets because they, they, they were free. The Nazis had been defeated. The World War was over. It was this time. Italy had just been destroyed through the first half of the 20th century. By the time that was done, Italy was desperate for heroes. Italy needed heroes. And you see that so plainly, you know, more more known on a bigger scale with the 1954 first ascent of K2, which was done by an Italian team. It was the last remaining prize in these great nationalistic races that, that were kind of remnants of the Great Wars era to be the first country to plant their flag on the world's highest peak. I mean, there were all kinds of terrible things that happened on that expedition, but none of that shit mattered. All that mattered is we had this national pride, we being the Italians. There's a great line in, in a book from one of the climbers of the, the trip who, it, and that I, I, I quoted in my book, I can't remember it exactly off the top of my head, but it says something like, after K2, Italy was, was finally able to proudly raise the flag of victory over the debris and humiliation of defeat. And when the K2 team returned from Pakistan, in 1954, at the port in Genoa. Remember how hard it would have been to travel anywhere in 1954? You don't, 
just jump in your Prius, you know, and zip on down. At the port in Genoa, they were greeted by 60,000 cheering countrymen and women. Italy finally had something to be proud of. You know, we think the Don Wall went big, you know, like, I mean, Jesus, th think of that. 60,000 people cheering for your climb in person. And then soon after, the global tide of climbing was shifting into what now we, we call alpinism. It's not just big teams looking to plant their country's flags on the top. It's small teams using less equipment, trying difficult technical objectives. And after Lionel Torre did the first ascent of Fitzroy and looked over at Cerro Torre, and so, Jesus Christ, what is that thing? Took pictures, sent out messages, said, you know, this, this climb seems to me impossible. Then the, the race is on, right? And so suddenly up north in the Trentino province of northern Italy, it's this semi-autonomous, somewhat separatist, very proud province up in the mountains. All of a sudden, they had their own hero, the great Ragno della Dolomiti, the spider of the Dolomites, and he was theirs. And he did what Tere and all their peers across Europe had called the greatest ascent in history. And it would be if it actually ever happened. But we know from a mountain of evidence that, that it never happened. They never got higher than about a quarter of the way up. I mean, the, the story is so far-fetched. I mean, it's, it's as if I told you I flew to the moon in my homemade spaceship this morning. You know, well, you can't really prove that I didn't. Um, I mean, it's a ridiculous story in a sense, but you have to admire the, the vision and the determination and the God, the balls to just go there. I mean, there's no place on earth today that was harder, that's harder to get to than Saratore was in 1959, which is when this happened. All of this was the blink of an eye after the end of the wars. I mean, the world moves so much slower then, pre-internet, before modern transportation. And so you have this hero, Cesare Maestri, Oragno della Dolomiti. He comes home. There's parades for him. He's on the cover of all the papers, but his partner never came back. And it's not hard to imagine how perhaps, perhaps actually out of almost like noble intentions, when, when they were off trying to climb and, and, and they failed to climb it, and Tony Egger never returned. And we're still not exactly sure what happened to him, which is one of the, it's the great tragedy of it all, much more so than, than the lie, the myth, the legend, whatever you want to call it about the 1959 story of climbing Saratori. But you can imagine in a moment of grief, maybe at base camp, he comes back to base camp where there's these folks who were, you know, helping run support basically. He comes back and it's just him and he's just fucking worked. His hands are bloodied. He's a mess. He's exhausted. And what happened? What happened, Chasery? What happened? You know, it, any human can imagine in a moment of grief, maybe he tells this story. Maybe he tells this story that, yeah, did, did you and Tony climb it? Where's Tony? What happened? He tells this story. Tell it once and you're trapped. Something that big, that important. How do you back away from that? That was really beautiful, Kelly. And you, you just like framed the the nuance and just complications around this man's death and the late Cesare Maestre who died this month. Um, just to take a, a, a big step back and just <laughs> yes. frame this for some of our listeners. This man, Cesare Maestre, was a renowned Italian climber 
who claimed the first ascent of Cerro Torre in 1959, which basically would have been like the most badass climbing achievement, you know, of that year and certainly, you know, years before or after. And, you know, recent sleuthing by Kelly here, as well as uh, Rola Garibaldi and others who've kind of done this Errol Morris, you know, look into photographs and other historical relics have more or less proven that that was a fib during that ascent. His partner, Tony Eger, died under uh, circumstances that are were never quite clear. And then, of course, Maestre came back, you know, kind of tormented by the this um, accusations of having lied about climbs, having climbed territory in 1959. He came back in 1974, I believe. Se- se- uh, 1970, actually. 1970. Se- okay. 74 was when the the uh, Ragni team from Leco, okay. the Leco Spiders made that's, what is that's where I got that. truly the first ascent. Yeah, it's easy to mix all these things up, man. Okay, yep. so 1970, he came back and he uh, bolted the com- the infamous compressor route up the s- southeast ridge of Cerro Torre, essentially bringing a gas-powered compressor up a mountain, drilling a bolt ladder to the summit. Major milestone in climbing and major ethical milestone <laughs> in both the positive and negative sense and just spark this conversation that we still have today. So just an absolute, I I, I don't think you can overstate the importance of this man in, in terms of his contributions to climbing, both in terms of what he gave in a good sense and is, but mostly in what he gave in a negative sense. And and so I I feel like that's the conversation that we, we want to have tonight you know, yeah. like a lot of the tributes that we've been seeing online have sort of either whitewashed or just sort of glossed over the fact that, the you know, I guess if, if I were to take the most cynical or just negative look at his career, the most critical uh, I could be, and I'm not necessarily saying I feel this way, but I'm just playing devil's advocate for a moment. Here's a guy who claimed to have done the most badass hardest climbing achievement in the world was basically proven to be a liar his partner died at the time on a different objective that wasn't even the thing he claimed to have climbed from what we know and in the last you know 70 years has not ever once disclosed how tony egger really died to the dismay of his living relatives mm-hmm. and has perpetuated what has been more or less proven to be a lie about his, yeah. his, his claim to fame. And then in order to, you know, in some way solidify his claim to fame came back 20 years later, drilled a bolt ladder up the most iconic, beautiful mountain in the world, left a, you know, gas powered compressor on the mountain as trash. Below the summit on that one, also by the way, didn't so didn't actually achieve the summit. Stopped below the the snow mushroom and had the logic of uh, saying that the snow mushroom was temporary. It didn't actually count as the summit because it wasn't truly part of the mountain, which um, you know is obviously ridiculous. So you know that's like the 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 negative, you know, yeah. like redux on this guy's life and 
when I look online right now and I read my stray obituaries, mm-hmm. I hear talk that is similar to what I just heard you talk, talk about Kelly mm-hmm. about the spider of the Dolomites and yep. his, his contributions. And he's this tormented, tortured figure. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but like think of this guy as this incredible narcissist who refuses to honor yeah. his dead partner. Yeah. Who's mostly interested in his own glory and has, yep. you know, in a lot of ways contributed a, just a negative, chapter in climbing's great storybook i think what's gone on and some of my italian friends have um reminded me of some of these things so as with most of us uh, my shoe is neither all good nor all bad i think within the realm of serratore i think most of what he did was mostly negative and i think that the fatal flaw the asterisk on his tombstone is lying to his dead partner's family about what really happened. To be clear, nobody suspects, has any reason to suspect anything nefarious happened. However, you do have an obligation to the truth. I have argued, like I did in my book, that I think there's a fundamental obligation to the truth in anything that matters. Those of us who devote our lives to climbing Climbing obviously matters if you're going to go halfway around the world and try to climb something hard, especially if it's something dangerous. You know, you're making some conscious decisions that matter. So I think it's disingenuous, uh, complete bullshit when climbers are like, oh, whatever, it doesn't matter, it's only climbing. It, it actually does matter. I mean, the, almost in a way, you can frame it the other way, that the fact that it has no overt value underscores the importance of what you do. In other words, if you can't be honest about your climbing, what else in life do you lie about? So I've long thought that the way we treat the things that we profess to love is a statement of who we are. And I think that's absolutely true in climbing mountains because you invest so much of yourself to it. Now, we could argue in circles about that. Some people might have good reasons to think that I'm overstating it, but I don't feel that way. Okay, fine. I've never heard anybody mount a viable defense as to how it was okay to return home and lie to Tony Eggers' family. It's completely unacceptable. It, it's kind of curious how a lot of Maestri's friends and supporters and defenders, most of them in Italy, it, how they've kind of conveniently omitted this this fatal flaw. What I've kind of, what I just sort of came up with the asterisk on his tombstone. I mean it. It's really hard to compartmentalize that away. So I, I don't really know how to reconcile that. On on the other hand, it's, you know, universally considered poor form to shit on the dead. You know, it's like, yeah, it's maybe not the classiest thing to do. But but this also like all these people who in Maestri's later years were arguing to like, hey, quit hassling him. Quit li-. I'm like, whoa, 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 who's hassling him? We're not we're not picketing in his yard. And by the way, what we're calling for is the truth. Are you trying to present an argument that the truth in this case doesn't matter? No, nobody presents that. But I think people put it away in a little bit of a black box. And and I, when I step back a little bit, I try to understand a little bit more, right? And I, I wrote some of this in the book. It, it, it's really hard when when these people, for whatever the reasons, have become our heroes. 
This has happened since the fucking dawn of time. Uh, up until right now, for damn sure. Like, I can make zero sense out of how Donald Trump becomes anybody's hero, but, but he is to some. And in any manner of facts, don't matter when that happens. I, I wrote something, or maybe it's just a line that I say when I'm doing book presentations for, for this, which is that w- w- when stories touch elements of our identities, evidence is no match for belief. And we, we've seen that since the beginning of time. It, we saw it in the U.S. Like with, I mean, think of a couple of different things. Think of like the Lance Armstrong thing. Like at first everyone was like, oh no, Lance wouldn't do that. Ra rah, USA, USA. You know, the rest of the world knew he was doping and we're all like, no, let not Lance. He, he, he overcame cancer. He won. He's our hero. You, you have all these reasons it, within cultures to identify with somebody. I grew up in a town called State College, Pennsylvania and did my undergrad at Penn State University. It's where Joe Paterno, the football coach, was, was a hero in that town. Everybody knew. I went to high school with his sons. That there is a, a you know a terrible story about this guy who was an assistant coach and was molesting children and the assistant coach I was college friends with that coach's son I mean but but some horrible things were going on as as was determined later just reprehensible things and still tons of people in state college people I grew up with people I was friends with just they they can't have it I mean because Paterno it, Joe Paterno it sounds like knew about this at least to a certain degree, and didn't take enough action. We're talking child molestation. And, and he didn't, he basically covered it up. And in state college, you know, where Paterno's a hero, and this guy Sandusky had this great charity, did all these things. They, those guys did so many good things. And Sandusky also was a fucking monster on another side of him, himself. It's too much for, for us to handle. It's a little bit interesting when we think about how we glorify people. Certainly in death, we have these hagiographies, you know, which is what's going on with maestri right now. And, you know, it kind of happens after someone dies. But humans are complicated. And I think I almost wonder if um, one of the enduring lessons from this is, is to be a little careful when it comes to heroes. So... I mean, heroes can, can do great things for us. And, and in Italy, and it wasn't just Saratori, he did all kinds of great things uh, in the Dolomites. And so Maestri became almost like this cultural hero for some people. He was like this iconoclastic figure. He was a rebel. He was fiercely determined. He was a great climber. It, there are several positive attributes here that nobody can, can deny, you know, that they're, they're true. And he also had some real bad flaws. It's kind of interesting. Look at one or the other sometimes. Funny because you bring up Lance Armstrong and, um, you know, because there was also this aspect of like the rehabilitation, you know, it's like finally everybody, you know, couldn't no longer deny that, that someone like Lance Armstrong was using steroids and, you know, and, and, you know, speaking of like Tony Eggers, you know, that complication in Maestri's story, like the thing that bothers me about, about, uh, you know, Lance Armstrong's story is that he you know, was shown to destroy the careers of people that wanted mm-hmm. to threaten his, his, you know, exposing him like yeah. over and over again, journalists, other racers. And so it's like, you know, forgive him his weakness towards wanting to win. Okay, fine. Like that's human, yeah, but sure. forgive him the, you know, the, the, the antagonistic and, and, right. you know, 
violent destruction of people's careers who tr- who tried to expose him is not something to forgive. But it's funny you bring that one up because, like, of course, I don't know if he still does his podcast, but for years everybody's like, oh, you do a podcast? Have you listened to Lance Armstrong's podcast? I'm like, no, I haven't fucking listened to Lance Armstrong's podcast. Uh-huh. Like, fuck that guy. Yeah, like, yeah. Why are we Why right. are we accepting his, you know, and and, and – it's it's interesting because it's like that feels like what happened to Maestri too, you yeah. know, even as, you know, as early as the, the I mean, as early as right after the ascent, there was, yeah. there was questions called and oh, definitely yeah. by the mid seventies, you know, serious alpinists were not, yep. you know, on board with, with believing that he had done what he had did. Um, are, are there modern Italian climbers, sort of maybe a younger generation, mm-hmm. not of of Maestri's generation, that you ran into that yes. that were still adamant defenders of of um, the Serratore nineteen fifty nine ascent. No, so the 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 folks that I spoke with, uh, and that there's some you know amazing cutting edge younger Italian alpinists, and uh, I spoke with a couple of them that were really helpful in giving me some perspective. So they would talk about this, and then I would like straight up ask them, well, what do you think about 1959 and do you believe it? And they would almost laugh like they couldn't believe that I was even asking the question. They're like, of course I know it's all bullshit and it's all a lie. But And I I have some quotations in my book from a couple of these folks. Um, They basically said that like, yeah, everyone, all of my friends, all of us younger people know that he didn't climb Saratoria in 1959, but we can never say that. in in our culture, it's like when the, the one guy had said, like, whenever I've brought it up, the, the older Italian climbers just shoot me down and call me the disrespectful youngster who doesn't know anything. It's like the you can't question the legend sort of mentality. I noticed almost like three distinct groups when I was doing research, when, when I was visiting Italy and, and subsequent follow-ups. It was like the old people of Maestri's generation, they believed. It's the true believers. And once again, like, it's almost like the fact, the facts don't matter. They really don't. The facts of Saratori don't matter to those people. When I would sometimes try to challenge some of them with the facts and well, what about this? What about that? Sometimes they would like laugh it off or change the subject. Yeah, that, that's not what it's about for them. What it's about for them is the time and the place that Maestri represented, which is something that, that I think is somewhat unique. To, to what was going on over in Italy. It's kind of something that we don't really relate to a whole lot over here. Although I guess you could almost make an argument, it, this is distant, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole. But we have our own mythologies, our own things. Look at the fucking Second Amendment nut jobs who like, you know, but but around the world, people are like, I don't get it with you guys and your guns. I'm like, it, you ever heard of like 1776 and the American Revolution? Like, this is part of our fucking DNA. You know, this is like our origin story. Well, you know, just to like follow that thread briefly. I mean, I think there yeah. is like some really relevant threads to what Maestre's death represents to us in this cultural moment. He's this kind of like confused person where you want to celebrate him, but you also want to castigate the negative parts. And so, you know, like that recalls, you know, like someone like Woody Allen or or Michael Jackson or you know, artists who've created great things or done, who have contributed great things, but also have this like, you know, negative history or negative past that's, that's come to light. The negatives with his past are far less egregious than, you know, 
what Woody Allen and Michael Jackson are accused of, but similar type of just sort of confusion or just like, um, just moral, like, uh, on lack of clarity on like how to feel about something, you know, but there's also this aspect of Maestre that's very Trumpy in a way, which is he, he's, he perpetuated the big lie to his dying day. And there was always this talk around on his deathbed, is Maestre going to be the, the bigger person and say, okay, you know, what happened to Tony Aker is he, blah, 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 blah. And we, we actually didn't climb territory in 1959. And, and he never did that. He never once did that. As far as we know, you know, we don't know if there's some deathbed ledger that he scribbled a note on, but I, I would say that at this point we can close the door on that, that hope of him being that, that kind of person. And it's sad. Like there must've been a tortured aspect to his life. From 1959 onward to live with this knowledge that was a lie that probably in his head became, you know, confused into being the truth Mm -hmm. and all of the accolades that he got, all of the, Mm -hmm. you know, the wealth that he accrued, he he accrued could be attributed to something that he knew in his heart of hearts was a lie. And, And that must have been a terrible life to have led a lot to carry with you you know well it's certainly like it's shakespearean i mean other than he didn't you know go insane and get his comeuppance in the end where they behead him no he did that in 1970 but without the beheading right when he had the compressor and he went bazonkers but yeah i mean that like you know it's it's a very literal tragic flaw this this moment of of whatever it was if it was weakness if it was ambition you know all those things are just you know, part of the hubris, like, and even like misguided honor is a, yeah. is an amazing, you know, sort right. of Shakespearean level, uh, uh, modus operandi. And so it, it's, it's kind of wild. And, and I feel like maybe the forgiveness that not only the Italians obviously had, but I think that is coming out in these, in these mm-hmm. multinational obituaries is that it's just yeah. that, we we sort of imagine him paying the price yes. of the last whatever seventy years. Still, I I understand the impetus of well, let's you know let's move on. Let let's let's highlight the good parts and um let this tortured man rest. I mean, I get it. I yeah. I totally get it. It's all I'm saying. And on the one hand, that I mean that that's why this is also complicated because it's not just that he was tortured. It's also the unacceptable part about lying to. Tony Eggers family. His -hmm. sister, Stephanie, is also in her 90s. They live only about four hours away from each other. But it's like he could never bring himself to do it. And that's why I wonder about the burden of that lie that he carried with him. And it's, I mean, there are victims to it. There's Tony Eggers family. There's also Maishi himself became a victim, uh, kind of of his own hubris. I mean, he's got like almost all of the seven deadly sins. And then if we want to go into like biblical things, you know, there's that saying, I think it's a, a Bible line, something about how the truth will set you free. But Maestri, according to those who were close to him, said that he was always conflicted and tortured in 2012 after the compressor out debolting. He mentioned a line that he had also said about 40 years earlier. He said, 
if I could have a magic wand, I would erase Saratore from my life. The, I, I do think he's a tragic figure, but there's also another tragedy. That's of Tony Egger. So after the photo discovery that, that Rolo made a few years ago, just a brilliant, brilliant photo match. Um, I had a piece in the New York Times about it. Rolo has it on his website. Um, it's in the post, uh, postscript to the next English version printing of my book, which was about to happen before the pandemic. And we're finally returning to it now and wrapping it up. But it came out in other languages, you know, just the way the book complexities work with translations and stuff. So this postscript was in the Italian version and included the photo discovery that Rolo made. That was really yet another confirmation that Maestri's telling a lie about how Tony Egger died. And I, I made the case while talking about the details of this photo discovery that Maestri's friends and defenders, they all say that they're protecting him. I also wrote in the book how when they say that, I actually think that's not true. They're protecting themselves. They're protecting a time, a place, a belief that means something to them. Cesare Maestri was as tortured and as bothered as they all say he was. And I believe the many accounts that, that say that. Then if they truly cared about him, what they should have done, and this is what I wrote in that postscript that was published in Italian, was they should stand by his side, support him. You know, we love you. We are here with you. But you need to tell the truth. And, and we'll be your friend and we'll stand by you. Perhaps it sounds a little pious of me to suggest that, but, but what, other, what other fucking option is there? You just let the man go to his grave carrying this lie around with him? But then again, maybe that speaks to just how big the burden was and how difficult it was to confront. Because in a way, maybe some of these people who believed in Maestri and believed in that story, to undo that, you're undoing the last 50 years of your life. And everything that changed after the war, is that all, is that all tied together? When Morella talked about she and her husband singing and dancing in the streets and being young and in love and full of possibility as the allied forces came through. And then, and, and when she's talking about it, it was amazing. I mean, it, it was that the light bulb went off in terms of my starting to understand a little bit of this. And she's talking about that. And then she seamlessly starts talking about, and then my husband and I, we were at the crag one day and there was Chasery and I knew that he was this great climber and soon he was going to Saratore and blah blah or or something. Yeah, I don't remember the exact details, but I you know, I recorded it and have it written in my book. Um all of these things are are deeply interwoven, I think, with some of the older Italians, which I think is some of these people who are writing these kind of hagiographies of Maishi, who's an incredibly complex character. And and tragically flawed. He, he, I think he's Shakespearean. How did you feel when you heard the news that he had passed? I don't know. I, 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 I didn't, it didn't register a ton on the emotional radar for me because I suspected that, that this is what ultimately would happen. Um, Maestri, part of what people have loved about Maestri is his strength, his determination, his defiance of everything. You know, he's this iconoclast. Um, as such, I think it's really hard for people like that to, 
to switch their stances. I didn't think he would ever turn it around. I had hoped that he would, um, mostly for the sake of Edgar's family and simply for the sake of the truth, which once again, I think the truth matters as a fundamental precept. Um, I'd love to hear an argument <laughs> as to why it doesn't, but I, I never had a ton of confidence that he would reverse course and tell us what really happened. Maybe he doesn't even know at this point. I mean, psychologists and stuff, they say that like, you know, each time we pull up a memory, we're pulling up a carbon copy. Like at least Chris is old enough to remember those old Xerox machines. Remember that shit? You'd do like, you'd make five copies of a copy. And by the time you're done with it, it's, you know, you're just making up words because you can't even read them anymore. That's what sort of happens in our brains. And it, it's not, it, it's not at all impossible to think that maybe Maestro believes some of it now. But but I don't know, there's a part of me when I hear about how sensitive he is and how upset he gets about things in private. I'm inserting myself into this, I guess, but I have to think that, that deep down it probably bothered him till the end. I think it's a tragedy on, on many levels. You know, one of the things that I've always thought about as a writer of climbing tragedies or stories or people dying is that the truth really matters to your point. Yes. How someone dies in the last moments of their life is, is very important. It speaks volumes to what their life is and it can be an unflattering portrait of them at that moment, but that still matters. It still matters to know that someone who's so experienced made a mistake because Even the most experienced people make mistakes. So that's like valid. That's that's important information to have. And right. so the tendency to whitewash death in climbing or to whitewash mistakes that are made, it's a terrible thing that I, I, I just want to like push back against. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm against yeah. that. And, and yeah. it goes back to the story in a way because – in the most charitable interpretation of what Maestre did, he was protecting his friend from making perhaps an embarrassing or egregious mistake. And he covered that up with this fabulous lie of having climbed yep. the hardest mountain in the world at the time. You know, that's the most charitable thing. And I, I would just love yeah. to, I, I just wish that we knew that that was the case because that would influence how I think about Maestre. It influenced how I think oh, yeah. about Edgar. And yep. we don't know that now. We still don't know that. And so it's yeah. this very unsatisfying end to this whole saga. The narrative of Maestre is this like brave, great climber still doesn't sit with me well, you know, no. because there's a massive asterisk. I mean, massive. He, he it's he not violated. just an asterisk. It's, 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 an, yeah. it's, 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 a, it's bigger than a climbing asterisk. It's a, yeah. It's a moral, oh, yeah. it's a moral a life flaw. Asterisk. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So. I mean, he, he violated the fundamental trust and understanding that the partnership, the bond that, that we partake when we tie into the rope with someone else. And in that, in that regard, I, I think, yeah, I think he failed climbing. I think he failed his community, failed Tony Eger, and he failed himself. And he took it to the that, grave. That, that's a fact. And he took it to the grave. And still, I I have compassion and sorrow for him. Yeah, and this is this other interesting aspect, culturally speaking, at the moment about Maestre is that we're trying to present him in this nuanced light 
which is yeah. so rare right now, you know, like we've yeah, you know, kind right. of like flippantly made these, you know, similes or analogies to, you know, Trump or whatever. And, yeah. you know, we wouldn't be talking so in, in this way about Trump if he had died tomorrow, you know, like our, our ability to be nuanced and sort of charitable has its limits. But, yeah. um, but yeah, it, it, it like speaks to this like current moment where there, everyone is good or bad or everyone is like, you know, sexist or not sexist or racist or right. anti-racist or whatever it right. is. And so, and there's all of this like very black and white depiction of uh, morality and worth and how that person, their, that person's life story is framed in our understanding of them. And so, you know, if anything, I hope this discussion urges people to have some nuanced understanding about someone who who had a complicated past and probably suffered for it their whole life and died, you know, knowing that the truth was still ungraspable because of their moral flaws or mental flaws as a narcissist or whatever it was. And, and that must've been a horrible life to have led. And, and there's like some kind of compassion that you can have for a life like that. Yeah. 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 I'd like to think that we as humans should have some room for empathy at times. Yeah. I mean, this, it's a terrible tragedy. I mean, it's not like I'm, you know, going to ever march around and say, you know, hooray, the, the, the liar's dead. It's, it's a horrible right. tragedy. It has this pathos to it that's terribly deep. You know, we, we said Shakespearean and you brought up the Greeks. It's so, uh, it's so deep and tragic that this man lived this life and to hear that he was, in fact, tormented about it. He wasn't some psychopath right. who just, you know, compartmentalized it and, and made it the truth the way a psychopath does. Right. He he lived with it, you know, by all indications, he he was bothered by it. And, and yeah, you know, you can say that, well, then he should have said something, but there's just like, yeah, it's so there's deeply... A, there's a know, lot there, of weight There's a postscript there. to yeah. be written about what the pain that he must have carried had been like. And, and may, maybe there right. will be more information revealed to that extent, yeah. um, if, if not the truth of the 1959 ascent. But he seems like a man who might have kept some thoughts in writing. And, and mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, there may be a postscript to this story in terms of that. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's not, you know, we're, we're not marching over this guy's grave. No. Um, no. Despite the fact that we find him, his decision to be abhorrent. Right. Um, and what he did in 1959, but, uh, you have to, yeah, I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you have to wonder what it was like for him in quiet moments, like mm -hmm. when the lights go out and when people aren't patting him on the back and calling him great, when he's alone with his thoughts, what was that like? You know, um, right. it, it probably wasn't the happiest place. And, and in public, he's held up as this persona, the spider of the Dolomites in private. Who was he? His friends talk about how he was sensitive kind e easily hurt emotionally i'm sure it wasn't an easy place to to navigate and sometimes our our heroes are just the persona that's associated with the real person and i i wish that the real person in the end could have had peace maybe he did i i hope so um there's that old saying that 
the truth will set you free, although that was not the case for Maestri, maybe death finally did. Climb 514, do you want to? Well, you can search the world over for that guidebook typo that accidentally bumped the 12B warm up to 14B. Or you can become a patron of the runout. Your $5.14 a month not only supports the content you are currently shamelessly consuming for free, but our savvy Patreon rope guns are also getting treated to bonus episodes like our year end 2020 roundup. Psychological games, or if Sharma was just hungry and thought he'd have a fucking cheeseburger before he won the next comp that he was gonna win. So he was just like, "Shit, this young kid, Shawarma, what's his name? Shawarma. He smells like meat all the time. <laughs> Fuck him. He's always beating me." <laughs> anyway, hopefully Magos has a similar attitude because it's it also lent itself to being um, really fun to to follow along with with Chris's career. You know? Yeah. So come down off that hangboard. And support the runout today at patreon.com slash runout podcast. Today's final bit comes from Danny Parker. Danny and his wife, Ashley Craycroft, are a dynamic duo of off with climbing. Danny's resume includes a third ascent of Century Crack, which is either 514B or 510A. Nobody really knows. But today, instead of groans and guttural subsonic throat screaming typical of hard off whists, Danny will be wowing us on his accordion and vocals on a semi-original tune he's called It's a Gobi. When the crack is F4 and your thumb won't take more, it's a goby. When the sand seems to run or it bakes in the sun, it's a goby. It will sting, sting a little, sting, sting a lot, sting, sting a sting, sting, it's a goby. Should scream, scream a little, scream, scream a screaming, scream, 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 scream. Now you are
You've just completed another episode of The Runout, a podcast from the sharp end of climbing. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and I run Evening Sends, the only climbing website on the internet. And I'm Chris Kalous, host of the Enormacast, the only other climbing podcast. Please leave a review of our show on iTunes, share an episode with your friends, and follow us on social media. We should be fairly easy to find. Drop us a line, let us know what you think. My email is andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And my email is chris at runoutpodcast.com. And also, please support our show. Go to patreon.com slash runoutpodcast and become a rope gun today. Mm-hmm.